welcome to this book at lunchtime event on Delius and the Sound of Place, written by Professor Dan Grimley. My name is Philip Bullock, and I'm the Director of Torch here at the University of Oxford. I'm delighted to welcome Dan to speak about his book. Dan spent so much of his time facilitating other people's research in his role as Associate Head of the Research in the Division that it's very nice to celebrate his own research on this occasion, and we're very pleased that he accepted the invitation to do so. We're equally thrilled to have our other panel members here, Alex Harris, Charlotte DeMille and Peter Franklin, who will be chairing everything. Published in November 2018, Delius and the Sound of Place examines the role of place in selected works by Yorkshire-born composer Frederick Delius, reading place as a creative and historically mediated category in his music, drawing on archival sources, contemporary <laughs> arts and literature, and more recent writings in cultural geography and the philosophy of place. This is a new interpretation of Delius's work, and he emerges as one of the most original and compelling voices in early 20th century music. In a moment, I'll hand over to Peter, who will fully introduce the book and the rest of the panel. This will be followed by a brief reading by Dan. Afterwards, our commentators will present their thoughts about the book from their particular disciplinary backgrounds. We'll then give Dan the chance to respond to the points before entering into a fascinating discussion. And we will, of course, have time for questions and comments from you in the audience. It's a great pleasure to be here to introduce our final book at lunchtime of Trinity term and indeed this academic year. Book at Lunchtime is Torch's flagship event series taking the form of fortnightly bite-sized book discussions with a range of commentators. Our programme for next term has recently been announced and I think flyers are already on the side, so please do take one of those. Sign up to our newsletter if you haven't already and you can find out what's on offer already in the autumn. All that's left for me to do now is to thank you all for coming, to thank the panel for coming and to introduce our chair. Peter Franklin was a professor of music at Oxford University and is an emeritus fellow at St Catherine's College. His primary research interests are Gustav Mahler and the late Romantic <laughs> Symphony, early 20th century Austrian and German opera, particularly Franz Schrecker, and Hollywood film music. He was visiting Bloch professor at the University of California in Berkeley in 2010, giving a series of lectures, lectures that were published in 2014 as Reclaiming Late Romantic Music, Singing Devils and Distant Sounds. We're glad that he, however, is very proximate and able. Whether he's diabolical, I'll leave you to decide. Uh, Peter, thank you. Thank you. I think I will do my introductions from this side. Am I audible to everyone? Um, now, Dan's book... Uh, I mean, it's not as if there aren't quite a lot of books on Delius, um, but many of them tend to be either memories like Eric Fendi's famous ones from the 1930s, or lives, lives, life and work kind of studies, uh, which try and say everything. Um, and musicological studies, sort of serious engagements with the music are much thinner on the ground. And in a sense, Dan's book, I would say, is perhaps the first since Christopher Palmer's book. Um, which came out in 1976, <coughs> um, Cosmopolitan, uh, the portrait of a cosmopolitan. Um, there have been other books since, sort of rather sort of big books that cover lots of things, um, all the life and music. But I think it's, it's rare because Delius has become a rather, a sort of, in quotes, forgotten composer who seemed not to speak to the, to the needs and issues that modernism was dealing with certainly after the Second World War, by which time Delius was long gone. And so he's fallen into a kind of niche as someone who a lot of people like but feel maybe he's not serious enough to speak or think seriously about. And I hope that we'll find that Dan has corrected that. 
um, in, a, in a very impressive way. Now, um, I think we will get going um, with our comments, if I must... Uh, oh, no, we've, sorry, we're starting with Dan. Um, so we're going to ask Dan to read a little from the book, which I'll leave Dan to, um, to introduce. To introduce Dan himself properly, um, he is Professor of Music at Oxford University, Fellow and Tutor at Merton College, and a lecturer at University College. Dan's research is concerned with music, landscape, and cultural geography, with particular reference to Scandinavian music and early 20th century English music, which is where Delia's pitches us, of course. So, um, Dan, shall I leave you to tell us what you're going to read from the book and to introduce it? And then uh, we'll have um, contributions from <coughs> the three of us beginning particularly with a focus on the interdisciplinarity of this study, which is not just heavy musicology, it's musicology drawing on other subjects and trying to contribute to a wider understanding of cultural geography and the philosophy of place in particular. Dan, if I hand over to you now. Thanks so much, Peter. let me first of all say it's wonderful to have a chance to talk about my stuff. Actually, I've forgotten that, uh, that occasionally I do research. And uh, to be here in the final uh, session of the Torch flagship book at lunchtime series is really a great privilege. And I'm really thrilled to have such an amazing panel of commentators. I don't want to embarrass them, but I think I've learned so much about place and being in place and writing about place and landscape from the writing of these three individuals that I could not have wished for uh, a more thoughtful and insightful uh, set of colleagues. So I'm really very excited to be here. I started writing this book over seven years ago. That was before there was a referendum on our country's membership of the European (laughs) Union. Uh, Suffice to say, I doubt that Delius would have voted to leave. Um, But it's been interesting thinking about Delius as a great European composer and also as uh, a great world figure. And one of the ways in which I'm thinking about place is by trying to show the interconnections between different kinds of places where Delius lived and worked and also places where he didn't actually visit but imagined. And I'm going to read you a very short extract which I've culled from one chapter on village life. And this also builds on a little radio broadcast I did with Tom's service back in December, just after the the book appeared. Of all the locations associated with Delius and his music, none feel as evocative as the small village of Grey-sur-Loire, where he spent most of his mature life. Located 40 miles south of central Paris on the edge of Fontainebleau Forest, Grey is not far from Barbizon, which became popular in the 1860s as an artist's colony, thanks to the landscape paintings of Jean-Baptiste Camille Corot and Ted Rousseau, amongst others. Attracted by the forest, the clean air, and its proximity to the city, Barbizon and later Grey attracted a young generation of artists and writers who were moved to write about the special qualities and atmosphere of the site. Beginning with Robert Louis Stevenson in 1875, Descriptions of Grey attended closely to the light, the beauty of the river, and the character of its ancient streets. By the time that Delius first arrived in Grey in 1896, the village had already become a well-known destination, one of a large number of semi-rural colonies and resorts that had sprung up across Europe in the final years of the 19th century, each of which was associated with its own distinctive circle of artists and writers. 
Picturesque, enclosed, and comparatively undeveloped, such locations appear to offer freedom and seclusion, away from the pressures and prying eyes of the city, a canvas for the creation of new alternative lifestyles and individual self-expression. The fin de siècle village became an artwork in its own right, a performed fiction through which the creative response to landscape and environment could be reframed and a venue for posing more urgent questions about the modern condition. But it also encircled a more contradictory series of social and political debates which belied its position on the edge of larger centres of habitation. Country life became an increasingly important theme in Delius's work from the late 1890s onwards. But like his relationship with America and the oblique sense of loss and alienation that underpinned his Whitman setting Sea Drift, the village offered no simple refuge or means of reactionary escape. Rather, it invokes a more complex subjectivity mirrored paradoxically in the essentially urban experience of the city. Though he stayed in Grey until his death in 1934, the village for Delius remained a more difficult and ambivalent symbol, a means of responding intensely to the experience of place and an idea of country life that was both partial and deeply privileged. Current day visitors can still travel easily to Delius's village, borrowing the train at the Gare de Lyon, the journey runs south along the Seine Valley and follows the forest line through Fontainebleau, where the railway curves over an elegant viaduct with a fleeting glimpse of the chateau before heading toward Orléans and Nevers. Alighting at Montigny, it's possible to walk over field paths through strips of woodland and parcels of arable land into the village itself. The forest lies along the horizon like a dark smudge. Grey is now largely a dormitory village. It consists of a cluster of pale grey buildings, austerely attractive rather than pretty, with a small square adjacent to the house occupied by the Swedish painter Karl Larsson when he lived in Grey in the 1880s. A narrow ruelle beneath the ruined keep of the 12th century castle overlooks a small green leading down to the river where Larsson and his contemporaries frequently chose to paint the old bridge. Delius's house, which you see in this picture, is at the top of the lane, alongside the rough ashlar masonry of the church. In summer, valerian and hollyhocks grow out of the village's soft limestone walls. Following the road back toward Montigny, the route follows the line of a series of filtration stations owned by the Syndicat des Eaux d'Ile-de-France, part of the network that supplies water and sewerage for Paris. The return journey takes less than an hour. This informal account of travelling to Grey illustrates the recursive nature of writing and thinking about place. At one level, such journeys comprise little more than a form of cultural tourism, a conspicuous set of act of consumption consistent with the long established tradition of travel literature through which Grey has historically been framed and understood. At another level, however, they reinscribe a set of ideological assumptions that rely upon a categorical distinction between village and city. As Raymond Williams famously insisted, the separation of town and country belongs to a single basic imaginary and to the same underlying economy of representation. On the country, he says, has gathered the idea of a natural way of life, 
of peace, innocence and simple virtue. Whereas on the city has gathered the idea of an achieved centre of learning, communication, light. From this underlying asymmetrical division of power and effect, William argues, follows a set of related associations, which are no less formative and symbolically charged. It's the cultural political subordination of the countryside, Williams concludes, that renders it amenable to, if not dependent upon, the urban gaze as a site of leisure, fantasy and escapism, which conceals the harder working class economies upon which binaries, such binaries inevitably reside. The city and the country then are not diametrically opposed, but inescapably intertwined, joined together by infrastructure, market economics and the urban imagination. Williams' analysis allows little space for rural voices to resist, challenge, or willingly accommodate this hegemonic urban gaze. But his model provides a useful threshold for reconsidering Delius's relationship with Gray, and his shifting encounters with the city This inevitably determined his representations of country life. Rather than trying to frame Delius awkwardly within the, category, within the category of the cosmopolitan, as Christopher Palmer sought to do in the 1970s, and I like Palmer's book a lot, but I think this idea of the cosmopolitan actually doesn't do very much useful work in terms of situating Delius. So I think it might be more productive to imagine Delius's sense of place shaped by an essentially mobile inter-urban experience over and above the simple country-city binary suggested by Williams. Delius's time in and around Paris was always in some ways consistently itinerant, a repeated motion between province, centre, and urban periphery. Delius's sense of place resides precisely in this dislocation, or rather through the process of translation by which it adapts or moves through multiple subjectivities or states of mind. Listening to the local topographies of his music with its effective acts of violence, exile and retreat demands confrontation with what Williams called, quote, the real social pressures, processes of alienation, separation, externality, abstraction, through which the city and country are kept apart and leads to a heightened awareness of the directness, connection, mutuality, sharing, which alone can define in the end what the real defamation may be. Gathering together the artists by the bridge in Grey, Sali and Vreli's walk to the Paradise Garden in a village Romeo and Juliet, and the clangorous bells at the ends of Delius's tone poem Brig Fair, Delius's country holds out an invitation to follow the path between the fields, the glow on the horizon, the last turn in the road. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. Um, now, you will have seen from the way Dan is writing about Delius. Um, not only does he give academic uh, strength for those of us who have scrambled up through a hillside through pine forests to find Marla's composing hut and things, suddenly it all becomes much more relevant and interesting, mm. uh, which I think is wonderful. But what is most important, perhaps, about Dan's book is this broad attempt to draw on other disciplines and to write about 
Delius in a way that does not only draw on the tools of musicology, but on the tools of other disciplines. So we're going to begin today, the three of us will be speaking. I'll try and bring in some words about musicology at the end. But we're going to begin with uh, Alex, uh, Alex Harris, who is a professor, pro professorial fellow of English literature at the University of Birmingham. Her research primarily explores work on place and locality, uh, just as, Delius has been, uh, as Dan has been discussing, um, literature in relation to art, architecture and landscape, seasonality and ceremony, literary inheritance across time, and 20th century British art and literature. Alex is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a showcased author in the International Literature Showcase. She has judged the Wollaston Award at the Royal Academy of Arts, the Observer, Burgess Foundation Prize for Arts Journalism, and the RSL Ondaatje Prize. Um, Alex Harris, oh, please. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you, Dan. I, I want to start really by just emphasising how significant this book is for people working on relationships with place far beyond Julius, because here is, a, here is a figure who has been thought about as a national composer, and it's very opposite, a placeless, wandering, cosmopolitan composer, and neither of these two extremes are adequate or rich enough to the, to the music and the thinking that's going on here. And Dan's book just goes straight in on this and gives us new ways of thinking about all those rich areas in between being nowhere and being somewhere. And I think love of place, while also feeling lostness and ambiguity about place, is, is fundamentally our condition now. And so it feels to me vital. Um, there's, we're still dealing with the problem of what we do with national schools. Um, I, I know I describe myself as writing about British art, um, but I'm increasingly uncomfortable with it because not only for political reasons, but because it leaves out so many of the connections between artists who work across um, geographical borders. And the ones which um, Dan brings out, um, I think very inspiringly in this book, are to do with um, topography and geology. So to give you a, a couple of examples of the way this works, um, his long, beautiful discussion of the piece Drift, relating it to what Whitman and, of course, to the geography of, of Long Island, segues, is it a segue, um, into discussion of contemporary responses to uh, shingle movement on Chesil Beach. So somehow we've got from um, Long Island to Dorset. And of course, why not? Given that these structures are more closely related in terms of their geological form, their movement, and Dan is at the same time giving us these um, maps of the way the music is moving in relation to the drift of shingle. Why not put those places together as urgently as we might put um, France and Germany together? Um, and that, that technique carries over into um, the discussion of the high hills, for example, um, where we think about what it is to, to be climbing, the physical strain of climbing. Then I love the way you talk about the orchestra suffering a bit in that, um, in that music and giving us that embodied sense of being in the hills. But you... And you, and you do a long discussion of the high hills in its um, relationship to Norwegian mountain um, landscape. 
And at the same time, you allow it to be a form of abstraction, you say. And because you pass us through the idea of the music as a form of abstraction, we're able then to move out into it representing other places. So you bring in the Yorkshire upland topography that was um, part of Julius's earlier life. And once we've, once we've found a way of talking about a kind of mountain music that might be relevant to mountains other than the Norwegian, but which at the same time can relate profoundly to other kinds of Norwegian painting as you, as you do and, and to the specific aesthetics, um, we seem to have something which is so open for all of us to bring our own mountain topographies to it. Um, so it seems to me that here's a book that says that Bradford, um, Bradford as a locality might be more important than English, Englishness, um, that thinking on the local scale might give us a more powerful entry into place than the national scale. Um, and this is matters hugely to me because I'm, I'm trying to write a book about a little bit of Sussex, not even all of Sussex, because, I mean, there are all kinds of different topographies in Sussex. Um, I mean, it's only joined together due to a political um, administrative boundary. Um, so Dan's conviction and confidence, I think, in the meaningfulness of topographical responsiveness um, has been really um, inspiring to me. Um, I've also been thinking about this book as a, as a modernist, I suppose, um, because you show that we are, not in, we are not entirely in one place at any one time. Um, I think our culture has some kind of obsession with people who write about place being authentically rooted. Um, we go wild for James Rebanks being the shepherd authentically rooted in, in Cumbria. There's a sense that you can only write about place or make music about place um, if you are rooted in it. And what you show is that ambiguity can and, and transience of place identity can go alongside passionate response to place. And that montage might, um, might be crucial here. So I, I, the line in my mind at the moment is Ali Smith saying that June is most vivid to us in December. Um, and it seems to me that the, the parish is most vivid to Delius when he's in Grey. Um, and that Bradford is most vivid to him when he's uh, in Florida. And that those, we have to find forms of talking about that montage and, and layering. Um, and for me, your methods here, and particularly your methods of close reading, phenomenal close reading of the way particular bars work, um, have I, you know, they've gone right into my trying to write about modernist layering of place, particularly something like Paul Nash's Double Exposures um, or Ford Maddox Ford, who after the war thinks about the layering of the downs of the Somme onto the downs of, of Sussex. Um, and that leads me to my... Has, has, oh, you haven't put the bio out yet. No. OK. Um, <laughs> um, that, <laughs> that, I suppose, leads me to... Um, to my admiration of the way you deal with ideas of exile and loss and, and sadness, because I'm, I'm writing about Paul Maddox Ford trying to find a home again after the war. Um, and you talk about Delius's striking empathy with those who have no place, so that you allow him to be both a composer for those 
absolutely rooted and for those who are not. And I think it's the case that in a, in a time and a land of, of exiles and, and migrants, we mustn't lose the ability to write about love of, of place. And whenever I have been disoriented, I've wanted that kind of music that relates absolute particularity of place with something more um, mobile. And I can see what Delius is doing reflected in what the writers of the First and the Second World Wars do in trying to work out whether their job is to reflect in their aesthetics um, the splintering and the refraction and the, and the transience of, for example, the Blitz, for example, Elizabeth Bowen writing about the Blitz or T.S. Eliot in the, in the Wasteland. Is the duty of art the reflection of that breakage or is it making a space in which you can live? And I'll end by saying that Dern has a, a, a leitmotif throughout of inhabitable music. He writes astonishingly beautifully about held stillness in, in Delius, the way that um, the music itself can become to uh, an exiled and travelling and moving composer the home, the still space. Um, it can become a mountain view. It can become a garden. Um, and he finds, I think, a new language for talking about inhabitable art. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex. Um, the whole issue of Delius's relationship to Wagner and Wagnerism is something that Dan touches upon. We haven't got time for that today, but there is a famous moment at the end of in Parsifal when Gournemans turns to the young Parsifal, who is confused by what he's seen in the Grail Castle. And at one point he says, here, time becomes space. Now, we've been hearing about space and place. Uh, our next speaker is going to take us a little bit more back onto the issue of time, which Dan also writes about. Um, so Dr. Charlotte DeMille curates the music programme for the Courtauld Gallery, where she works for the Education Department. With them, she co-authored Animating Art History, a joint initiative with Central St. Martins and the University of the Creative Arts, which was long listed for a Claw Award in Museum Learning. Her work studies the intersection of painting, music, and philosophy in Europe uh, between 1848, roughly, and 1950. She's editor of Music and Modernism in 2011, co-editor with John Malachy of Bergson and The Art of Imminence, 2013, her curatorial work includes UK Supreme Court Arts Trust, LSE, Piano Nobile, Nobile, and King's Place Music Foundation, MS2, Wuj, Christchurch Mansion, Ipswich. She will be a Paul Mellon Centre Mid-Career Fellow in 2019-20. Dr Charlotte DeMille. Thank you, Peter. And I, again, would like to say thank you to Dan and to Philip for this introduction to um, invitation to come uh, to Torch uh, this afternoon. Um, I have, um, like Alex, um, taken so much rich inspiration from this book um, on so many levels. Um, I, by background, I am an art historian. Um, I masquerade as a musicologist, um, and I'm half a philosopher. Um, and so, uh, I was when I was trying to work out at which um, which point of intersection um, I wanted to pursue um, this afternoon, um, I really honed in on Dan's extraordinary connection of Delius to the philosophy of Heidegger, and in particular to um, Henri Bergson, who I've done a lot of work on. And so, what I would like to emphasise today is 
these um, moments of thinking about time um, and about modernism and about modernist epiphanies in Delius, um, just at a moment when actually Delius is often um, not somebody he would often put in, in these categories. So for Frederick Delius, Dan writes, creative engagement with place was a mode of occupation or a dwelling. Um, and occupying a series of abstracted topographies, idyll, river, drift, village, hill, and garden, Dan's book, Delius in the Sound of Place, really performs the abiding concerns of his protagonist, the English son of German emigres, whose occupation of Bradford, Florida, Leipzig, and Grez, as you've been hearing, also itinerantly Norway, marks this very traditionally British composer as nothing of the sort. Um, Delius's geographical biography resists the national frame um, of his music, which has been too often being conceived, um, particularly by, um, by scholars um, previously. And similarly, Dan's astute exploration of the concept of place resists any designation on literal, let alone national identification. So instead, Dan is using a sense of place as a methodology it becomes a mode of reception and as an interpretive tool. And I find this so helpful that somehow abstracting place from any particular location, as Alex was saying, using the idea of place um, as an interpretive tool really unlocks so much potential across all sorts of disciplines as to what we may wish to do with it. Now, as becomes very clear from a brief, uh, brief look into Dan's book, Delius's places are multiple. Um, and even while the title of a particular work might um, relate to a specific um, location like Florida or Brig, um, these places are just as surely deferred and um, they are obscure and interwoven um, and the as, as the geographies of their inspiration and as the experience of any of us in these places is similarly multiple, often abstracted, deferred, but also very precise to us as individuals. <coughs> um, so Dan sees the composer's more pervasive um, compositional interests as being a, a perceptive understanding of the culturally imagined, consumed and produced places at the turn of the 20th century. Um, Delius, he writes, has a very sharp ear for experiential gaps what we don't hear and what we don't see as much as what we do. Um, psychological transitions, um, the, um, the sense of a wandering um, nomad, um, and marginalised identities. And finally, a very sure handling of multi-point perspective, near and far, presence and recollection, togetherness and alienation, and um, an attention to flux and irresolution. And some of those binaries um, spoke to me very strongly in relation to philosophers of time at the beginning of the 20th century. So the list of those binaries there allies really with the central tenets of much of modernism. It marks Delius as a distinctively modernist voice, thoroughly in keeping with the international lifestyle of, and network of his artistic friends from Greek to Gauguin. But whereas a painter such as Gauguin addressed these themes and particularly the experience of going away um, in a very extreme going away to Tahiti, um, Delius unsettles us precisely because his going away is as much a state of mind um, as it is um, a physical transition. So, for instance, the village in A Village, Romeo and Juliet is shown in, in Dan's words, the real social processes of alienation, separation, externality and abstraction. And I think Dan also quoted that in his, um, his reading. Um, similarly, the garden identified um, by Dan in the composer's double concerto as a site of solace 
is also a place of social confinement in which women are unable to contribute to heavy manual labour. And so whilst um, the garden is also regarded as a metaphor for renewal, for self-realisation, for memory of paradise and of paradise regained, um, it's very clear from Dan's book that um, it's possible to read many of Delius's places in epiphanic contexts. So I wanted to think slightly about um, modernist epiphanies um, and their illustrious uh, critical literature. Um, Delius hasn't commonly fallen within this frame. Um, and it's in part perhaps due to his balancing between the perspectives of observer and experiencer. So a descriptive narrative programme piece that takes as its role a commenting or at most a witnessing cannot, it would seem, fulfil the criteria of um, immersion, of being with, that an epiphany would demand. Delius's multi-perspectival multi writing oscillates between being an observer and an experiencer, both being fully within a moment and experiencing it in an epiphanic context, and also standing on the outside from the margins watching in. Um, and this constant sense of expa expansion and contraction, or a wave like rise and fall, um, which you see in the structure of the Song of the High Hills, um, as Dan, in Dan's words again, continually fluctuating drift between a sense of emergence and withdrawal, the sense that the waves are emerging and withdrawing. I mean, it's so evocative, poetic writing that really grips the imagination. Um, Dan compares the Song of the High Hills um, and its um, vertical cycles, its structure, um, in particular to Henri Bergson's famous cone of memory from Matter and Memory in 1896. Um, but from Dan's analyses, we could infer a Bergsonian context far more broadly to Delius's work. Um, Dan demonstrates that much of Delius's music from the early on, the, on, the first, um, on hearing the first cuckoo in spring explores what Bergson describes as a dynamic temporal shift, a continually fluctuating series of intensities and qualities um, now, Bergsonian intuition, which is one source of modernist epiphanies, relied on these very intense moments of being, um, experiences experienced by differences in mental um, tension. So both the expansion and the contraction was absolutely critical to a Bergsonian idea of a durational or a temporal consciousness, um, much like the stream of consciousness in modernist literature. Um, but as Bergson puts it in his ecological study, Creative Evolution, um, which was published in French in 1907, intuition establishes an empath empathetic relationship between us and the rest of the living by the expansion of our consciousness, which it brings about, um, and it introduces us into life's own domain, Bergson writes, which is reciprocal interpenetration and endlessly continued creation. So, in this description, intuition is a sort of being with. It's also akin to a kind of sensory overload, um, a quality that was addressed in Delius's music um, from his earliest reviews, and which is consistent with the interpretation from Dan's book. Um, so there are many instances that Dan quotes from um, contemporary literature where um, uh, critics are picking up on a multi-sensory overload, they're picking up on a relation between um, visual and oral sensibilities. Um, and um, I'd like to just close really by thinking about this um, a little bit, the 
um, connection between Dan's abstraction and vivid pictorialism um, that he identifies as being part of Delius's work, that it's at these opposites, these extremes, it's both extremely abstract and extremely vividly pictorial, and how it can be these two extremes simultaneously is one of the most engaging lessons um, from this book. Um, so at the, um, in his 1890 utopian fiction, News from Nowhere, um, the artist and revolutionary William Morris envisages the 21st century. The Thames from London to Oxford is a rural idyll. Civilization is a socialist utopia of educational, political, and sexual freedom. But the defamiliarization of the familiar locations causes the traveler in this instance to name this future place nowhere. No place seems simultaneously to be all places, um, an ideal devoid of particularities, hierarchies, um, or political organization. Um, that seems to fuel both Morris, but I would also argue Delius's engagement with the real um, places of his own present. And yet it's possible that in Delius's ecological and cosmological flights of fancy, um, that he too offers um, a parallel um, ideal of mankind in harmony with a healthy natural world, where, um, in Dan's words, the epic geographical processes of somewhere like the Norwegian landscape embodies both the beginning and the end of human time, um, or of the composer-poet's role as a mystical ecologist, um, which opens up another form of mediation, which presupposes a different state of being in the world. If this can be so, then Delius's attunement to his sonic environment, to his sense of place, and to um, sound's duration or sound's temporality, um, and to his acoustic memory, um, really, for me, means that Delius's work has never now been more urgent than it is today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Charlotte. I will try to be relatively brief because we want to hear what Dan might want to respond to in these comments. I hope it will be clear to you, for those of you who have not read the book, and we probably assume that many of you haven't yet, that it is well worth reading, particularly if you are the sort of person who tends to be rather frightened by musicological books that you fear are going to be highly technical, rather obscure and difficult. Now, there are reasons why music, musicology within the academy has felt the need to be obscure and difficult um, in difficult times, such as we've had over the last decade or so. And Dan, of course, um, echoes some of this unease in his preface. Um, and if you start reading this book, you might get nervous because... He, um, he raises a rather scary banner on which the REF-rooted word rigor is, <laughs> is emblazoned and promises that we're going to have a rigorous discussion, uh, which we do, as is, I think, already clear. He then lays out his tools, and this is where things become interesting, as we've been hearing. These are not conventional musicological tools. They begin with cultural geography, then philosophy of place, only then does he mention, I think I've got this right chronologically, musical analysis, and then slightly scarily adds advanced analysis. <laughs> now, it seems to me the one thing, this is in the preface, I'll give you the page reference, um, and it is, it's all good stuff. Um, and I think what I celebrate as someone who has long been worried by the project of musical analysis within the academy, um, as having a largely ideological role, uh, which I haven't got time to go into, but has to do with 
trying to explain that great music is nature and not culture. That's in the very, for some serious advanced analysts. Now, it seems to me that what Dan does here, and as I hope is clear from what the other two speakers have said, is that he turns musical analysis towards critical ends. And these critical ends have to do with something that was once uh, felt to be rather shocking within musicology, which is to talk about meaning and experience, um, and indeed place and space in relation to music. So this, it seems to me, um, is what is so impressive and exciting about this book, because Dan has found a way which is not the way that some of the so-called new musicologists found in the 1970s and 80s, but he's found his own way to writing about music as ideology in all the richness of that term, which is not simply a negative term, but it's the way we look at the world, and that way of looking at the world can also be communicated through music. So it seems to me that he's enabled a wonderful critical appreciation, reappreciation, of some of Delius's works. I particularly value his writing about the Florida Suite, which I think is a symphony, not a suite at all. It's a very wonderful piece. He also writes wonderfully about the operas The Magic Fountain and Coanga, which I'm sure some of you will know, even if you haven't read Dan's book. He also writes, as we've heard, about the multivocality of sea drift um, in chapter four with a wonderful conclusion, which we might have time to come back to. And I have already said that I value particularly what he has to say about Brig Fair, which is a work that I uh, rather, well, I, I shouldn't say this sounds rather pompous, but slightly like Delius, who was often given to saying, is there English music? I've never heard any. Um, <laughs> <laughs> somebody was trying to tell him that he was an English musician. Um, and I've often been rather, as a, as a, a scholar of continental music and Mahler and Austrian modernism, um, have never felt entirely happy with Brig Fair, which seemed to be a very English sort of piece. It's actually a place I went to just a year ago. Um, but D, uh, Dan has brought me back to Brig Fair, and I now realise what a wonderful piece it is made alive by talking about the music in this interdisciplinary way. Now, at this point, um, our original plan allowed Dan to respond to points raised, and we're then going to have a discussion. Um, Dan, would you like to respond a bit? After which, yeah. I thought what we yeah. might do is open this to questions from the audience and have our discussion between ourselves maybe on the basis of some of those questions, because it's a shame if we, if we all depart and people have got burning things that they want to say and don't get a chance to say it. So, Dan, would you like to respond yes, for a bit first? Yeah, well, I think I'll, I'll be very brief, partly because, I mean, three incredible responses, and there's far more in there that I think I can process and synthesise <laughs> in, in 20 minutes. So I'm hugely grateful and also astonished that you've you've drawn all these things out of what now seems to me a very clunky text. Um, I thought what I'm struck by is actually the, the, the common themes which are around, um, around the idea of montage, which I think is really, I, I actually hadn't thought of it quite in, in, in that way, but it's such a good word for describing, I think, what's, what, what is going on in, in these pieces. And that is that sense of multiple uh, subjectivities and experiences and ideas of place being present simultaneously and that music is not uniquely able to evoke that because of course it it, it isn't but that it's very well uh, equipped 
to, to deal with that sense of things moving in several directions at once. And that is precisely, I think, why it becomes such a crucial medium at this moment in the early 1900s when there's so much intensive philosophical and literary and artistic speculation about what it means to be a human being in a rapidly changing world. And I think that's also why I came back to Delius when I did, because for a long time I'd resisted it and found it very hard, very opaque and very indulgent music. And it was actually, I think, through the through a sense of, of loss and, and of being hollowed out that actually it was from that point I became consoled by the music and then I was also intellectually engaged by it. And I think that in very different ways you've actually all put your finger on precisely that sense of, of its consolation and its concern with that very basic question of what it means to be human that underpins all of the discussion and which all of my rather arcane machinery is really trying to work through in all sorts of all sorts of ways. I think that, and I think the only other thing I'd say is that the, in many ways the most difficult part of the book to write was the stuff about race. And we haven't talked about that uh, yet today, but it was a very important strand of the America chapter. And I think especially right now, given the status of current political events, the challenge of thinking through race and a representation and how we can speak about it responsibly and in a way that communicates and opens out conversation rather than foreclosing it. That's almost the, the I think I think that along with the ecological dimension that, that Charlotte you, you identified, I think that's for me is the most urgent urgent part of the text. I, I did one of my questions which I will now just float for you, which was to wonder if at any point, as you were writing it, it, it occurred to you, you might call this, the subtitle might be The Sound of Race, because it, it, is, it, it is actually, as you said, we haven't really discussed this, it's hugely important strain within, within the book. Um, would either of the other uh, contributors like to say anything at this point before we invite questions from the audience? When saying a tiny bit about the, what yeah. you've done with the with the Florida yeah. suite, actually, I mean, for the, for those who haven't read it, there's done this amazing piece of archival um, foraging um, to work out which sounds Delius is not including, um, and and he's taken us to the, um, the those working on the Solana Grove estate and the conditions in which they were living, and holding up those. Um, that evidence, that testimony against the sort of idealised singleness of Delius's, what Delius wants to evoke. And what I want to ask, because this comes back to the relationship between singleness and this kind of abstraction and multiplicity that's going on all the time, is how far do you think Delius is asking us to hear what he is not showing us? Is, 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 there, is there a purposeful sense in which he, sh he knows that he's showing us a an edited single version? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. Yes and no, of course, is the, is the political answer. No, because I don't think he necessarily wanted to put his finger on it's exactly this which you're not getting and which I'm concealing from you. Uh, but yes, in the, I think he is, his music always opens up that gap where there's a sense of it's incomplete and it's it's only ever partial and there's always a, a darker side and I choose that word very carefully in this instance uh, and that 
there is always a, a, a another tone that you're not getting. I think that's 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 often in Delia's that's that's been figured as a sort of wistful nostalgia, and it is of course part of that because that's very much the sort of 1890s romantic subjectivity version of of that loss. But I think also it takes on that much harder, grittier, nastier quality too. And no um, it's for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think playing with that is also partly why his music is is so particularly poignant <laughs> in those in those moments of intensely beautiful rapture that you do get mm. elsewhere. Mm. It always comes at a cost. And I think Delius is very aware of what that cost is. And I think if you listen uh, attentively, you can, you can identify that too. Mm. 